0: happy sunday west village family how's everybody doing out there Uh, If I have another chance to meet you yet, my name's Chris. I am one of the leaders here at West Village. It is great to have you joining us, West Village family. I miss you, I miss you, I miss you. Uh, But I'm so thankful that we can be together uh, via technology. I want to give a quick shout out to all the moms out there. Happy Mother's Day. Moms, I just want you to know we love you, we care about you, we appreciate you so much. uh, And I hope that today, uh, even though it's a weird uh, day to be celebrating Mother's Day, that you feel loved, you feel uh, special, you feel cared for by your families, Thank <laughs> you. Uh, and dads, if you haven't done anything yet, if this is like you know you're just hearing about this for the first time, like hit pause on this and like go go and do something. Make some breakfast in bed, something uh, to love and bless uh, the ladies in your life. Uh, we are going through a series on the Book of Esther, but before we jump in, you can grab your Bibles, take those out, go to Esther chapter two. Before we jump in, I want to make uh, just a quick uh, announcement for our church family. I wanted to let you know uh, about some of the unique ways that uh, in this COVID kind of reality that we're living in, that our church is responding to the things that are happening. Around Uh, We have pulled together some people in our church family to be sort of what we're calling our COVID response team and we're launching a couple of initiatives and we need your help to uh, participate in those. Uh, The the one initiative that I'm going to tell you about today uh, and we'll be announcing uh, the other initiative uh, shortly is what we're calling our restaurant to table initiative so we're working with local agency uh, here in the city can't quite say exactly who it is yet because we're still sussing out all the details but to work with some families who are in need uh, and then we're also working with some local restaurants who also have need as they've seen a reduction in their business and we're trying to bring those two worlds together. Uh, so what we've started is what we call the COVID Relief Fund. Uh, you can go to our, our uh, website, westvillagechurch.com uh, forward slash give. You can find the COVID Relief Fund on there. We're asking the church family to give to that COVID Relief Fund. And then what we're going to do is... We're going to be sponsoring families to get meals from restaurants. And so our hope with this is that we're actually able to bless uh, kind of two spheres in our city. We want to bless uh, small business owners who have obviously taken a big hit, but then uh, we also want to bless families who have need. And so we're hoping that uh, through this, God will uh, give us the opportunity to love, serve, and bless our city, to be good news, to, to, to live out what it means to be the gospel in this moment, to bless and to serve those around us who have need, Uh, to make jesus known in our city that's always been our heart that we want gospel saturation to happen in the city of victoria that every day every man woman and child would have a daily encounter with jesus and his church through word and deed and so here's the ask on you at this point there's going to be more asks coming but right now here's the ask that you would just go and help us uh, fill up that fund so that we can do this not just once but we can have this kind of happening on an ongoing basis and so that you know we can ultimately love and bless and serve jesus and love and bless and serve our city all right if you have your bibles open them up go to esther chapter 2 uh, again we've been going through this book for a few weeks now i think this is week number 4 uh, and as you go to esther chapter 2 i just want to kind of set up what we're going to talk about today because uh, we really need to kind of have some context not necessarily of the story but again of of the meta narrative of the story of the bible and so uh, one of the things that we see when we talk about spirituality in the world that we live in this kind of classic postmodern view of spirituality that we have in our culture is this idea that the universe is is one that there's no distinction within the universe, within the spiritual realm of good and evil. Uh, it's subtle, but it's there. Uh, there's kind of this yin and yang view when it comes to spirituality, that there's good and, and evil in a sense, but, but really what there is, is there's just kind of this oneness. And when we approach spirituality as a culture, the way we approach it is that every single idea in the marketplace, every single religious idea, philosophical idea, they have kind of two components to them. And what we do is, is we the, the two components are, are kind of yin and yang or good and evil but what we do is we go to each of these ideas and we just sort of take the good from each of them uh, and so we treat spirituality we treat uh religious thought sort of the same way we would treat a buffet we pull our plate out and we walk up to the buffet and we walk the line and we just take from whatever dish that we want to take from the problem with that is that that's not how the Bible describes spirituality. That's not how the Bible describes the way that the world actually works. And so what we see in our culture is we see people who uh, don't go to church, but yet they pray. We see people who do go to church, yet they dabble in all sorts of other, you know, Eastern religious practices. They might practice meditation or they may practice yoga. And so you have this idea, even in the atheistic world, where now mindfulness is a, a real common practice for the average person. But the Bible comes into that uh, idea of spirituality and says that's not actually how the world works. That's not actually how uh, God has designed things. He's designed things very clearly. There's good, and that is him. Uh, that God is good. He is working in and through human history. He's working with his providential hand through human history to bring about, to bring about his redemptive purposes in the world. And then there is evil. And evil is always working against God. It's always working to thwart God's plans. It's always working to undermine the truth of the reality of who God is and how he's revealed himself to us. And the reason I start with that is because what we are going to see in our story today is we're going to get introduced to two characters, Mordecai, who we've already met, and another man named Haman. And they have a conflict Uh, But you have to see that there's something much more significant happening here than just two guys who happen to not get along. That what this story is telling us is actually the story of our world, that good and evil are doing battle that god is battling against satan he's battling against demons that god is is trying he is working to bring about his redemptive purposes in the world but that there is actually evil there is actually demonic realities there is actually dark spirituality there is actually things in the world that are working against god his plan his providence to bring wholeness to bring redemption and to bring restoration And so we need to see that this is much more than just a a story of two men or or, or historical events. This is actually telling our story. So again, if you have your Bibles, go Esther chapter 2. And let's jump in. Esther chapter two, picking up in verse nineteen. Here's how the story starts: When the virgins were assembled a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gates. Okay, so if you remember from last week, uh, King Xerxes he started his own reality show called The Bachelor Persia, where he had all the women from uh, you know from his kingdom come, and he picked one. He ended up picking Esther. He made her the queen. He liked that so much, he decided he was going to have a second season to the show so the bachelor season two happens Mordecai's there he's sitting at the king's gate in other words what the author is trying to show us is that Mordecai now has a job at the palace the king's gate was sort of the outer courts of the king's palace it's where business and government would intersect and so Mordecai's working for Xerxes he's working in the government verse 20 uh, but Esther had kept her secret from the fam- uh, kept her secret. Uh, sorry, but Esther had kept secret her family background and the nation- her nationality, just as Mordecai had told her to do. For she continued to follow Mordecai's instructions as she had done when he was bringing her up so again i want to make this super clear when we read this story we are not to read the book of esther and we are not to look at esther and mordecai and hold them up as examples of what we want to be like because what we see right here is that esther and mordecai were were actually hiding suppressing the fact that they were followers of the god of the bible they didn't want people to know they they wanted to make that an unknown fact so it wouldn't impede their ability to rise within xerxes empire so what we see here with, with uh, Mordecai and with Esther is that they have their feet firmly planted in two worlds. On one sense, they recognize that they belong to the God of the Bible. They are his chosen people. But on the other sense, they have their feet firmly planted in the nation of Persia and Xerxes' empire, and they kind of like it. Uh, they don't want their cover to be blown. Uh, this would be akin to you know, us in our workplace maybe being afraid to share that we're followers of Jesus for fear that it might cost us a promotion. Right? This would be like if we're high school students uh, and, we, and we go to school and we're hanging out with our friends and they're doing stuff that obviously doesn't honor Jesus, obviously would, would work against the thing that Jesus would call us to uh, be and work against the way that he's called us to live. And then we, out of fear, hide our faith in Jesus. That's what's happening here. Verse 21 Here's what we see during the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Bigthana and uh, and Teresh, two of the king's officers or eunuchs is how that word is translated, who guarded the doorway, became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. So, uh, king or not king? Sorry, Mordecai. He's at the king's gate and he sees two of the king's eunuchs great names, big Thana right' if you're, if you're out there looking for kids names, the book of Esther has got all kinds of great names for your kids. So the king's eunuchs are there and he and, and uh, Mordecai overhears this plot that they have to assassinate King Xerxes. Now, what is significant about this or why this, is, uh, why this actually makes some sense is because if you know how Xerxes went about uh, en- enlisting eunuchs into his kingdom, you would recognize that these guys have a lot to be upset about. Uh, so again, Xerxes has like a whole wing of his palace devoted to his harem of women. Uh, he didn't want to have other men in his palace who would be sleeping with his harem, so he would hire, he would, uh, he would employ eunuchs. Uh, to work for him now the way a eunuch would be uh, brought into the palace is he would literally enlist them in the same way uh, the military would draft people to join the military during war times where there would be forced conscription into the military this is what Xerxes did to get eunuchs to work in his palace so there, there's historical uh, data that points to the fact that there were times where Xerxes would go out and he would just call 500 young men to come into the palace and then he would make them eunuchs. He would castrate them. So you can appreciate uh, why these guys want to kill Xerxes. I mean, I'm I'm, I'm with Big Thana on this one, right? If, if Xerxes brings me into the kingdom, makes me a eunuch, I'm not going to be super pumped about this. Verse 22, but Mordecai found out about the plot and told Queen Esther, who in turn reported it to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. And when the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were impaled on poles. So Mordecai hears these two guys wanting to assassinate Xerxes. Is he going to do the right thing? Is, even though Xerxes is a bad guy, is he still going to go and uh, do the right thing and, and, and like out them? He does. He tells Esther. Esther tells the king. The king uh, does an investigation. He reads the reports. He finds out that these guys are indeed seeking to assassinate him. And what does he do? It says here in the text that he has them impaled on poles. Uh, now, what does that phrase impaled on poles mean? It doesn't sound fun, does it? literally it means to be hung on a tree Uh, it's also the same word that we get the word crucifixion from Uh, so what we see here is that xerxes actually was going to crucify these two servants of his who sought to assassinate him Uh, now the persians were actually the ones who invented the idea of crucifixion it was perfected by the romans the romans are the ones who crucified jesus but the persians were known for crucifixion now i want you to see something here Here we have two of Xerxes' servants who sin against him. They sin against the king. And what does Xerxes do? He has them crucified you see the irony here don't you church you see see the irony of what what is being pointed out to us here we have xerxes he's he's the king he's so far he's been pitched to us as like this functional god he's high and exalted above all the people they're all looking up to him he's seated on a throne looking down at all the people they're worshiping him they're adoring him and when those in his kingdom sin against him what does he do he has them crucified hung on a tree, murdered. They, they pay for their sins. The wrath of King Xerxes falls upon them. Don't, don't miss what the author is trying to show us. Do you see one of the themes, we've talked about this each week as we've gone through the book of Esther. One of the, the big themes here is Xerxes and Jesus. You see the difference between King Xerxes and King Jesus. While Xerxes crucifies those of his servants who sin against him, what does Jesus do? He himself is crucified. He himself, he gets up off of his throne. He enters into the story. He enters in as one of the servants. He he lives a perfect life, the life that the servants, in this case, should have lived. And that instead of holding us accountable for our sin and our brokenness and our rebellion and our assassination attempts against him, the treason we have committed against the king of the universe, what does he do? He, in our place, goes to the cross for us. And we get this beautiful picture of the grace of God. Some of you have this picture in your mind of what God is like, and you actually think God is more like Xerxes, uh, you think like he's, he's up on the throne, he's angry, he's evil, he's, he's frustrated with you. And if you don't do what he wants you to do, what is he going to do? He's going to zap you with lightning, he's going to smite you, he's going to come against you. If, you. if you don't obey his commands, if you don't live up to his expectations. But that's not what Jesus is like. Jesus said, if you want to know what God is like, all you need to do is look at me. The Apostle Paul described it like this in the book of Romans chapter 1. He says, the righteousness of God is being revealed in Christ. In, he actually is specific enough to say the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. That, that when we look at Jesus, we actually, we actually see the very heart of what God is like. It's the very center of Jesus is the gospel. It's the, his, the story of his death, his burial, his rection, resurrection in our place for our sins. what do we see we see a God who's kind we see a God who's compassionate we see a God who's merciful we see a God who's gracious we see a God who when you fail him he doesn't come against you but he offers his grace love mercy and kindness we see this right here in the story with Esther and Mordecai. Up to this point, they have not been obedient. They have not been good followers of Jesus. They have not lived up to God's, God's decrees, his commands, his desires for them. He wants so much better and so much more for them. And at no point has he consumed them with fire or come against them. In fact, he's still chosen to use them despite their folly and their rebellion. Friends, you need to know God's gracious. You need to know it. You need to receive it. You need to embrace it. And so we have this scene here where Mordecai saves the day, right? He uncovers this plot for Xerxes to be assassinated. What's going to happen? mordecai right he's going to get a prize a promotion maybe xerxes will give him a balloon just to celebrate him a gold star on his chart well look at what it says in the next verse all this was recorded in the book of annals in the presence of the king in other words the king gets the full report he knows everything that's happened he knows who was trying to kill him he knows that it was mordecai who tried who did save him what's he going to do what's going to happen to mordecai skip over to chapter three picking up in verse one it says after these events." This is five years. So there's five years between chapter three, verse one and the end of chapter two. So Xerxes has had a lot of time, right? He's had a lot of time to go uh, get like a a, a present, you know, a thank you card, maybe some flowers or something for Mordecai. And that's what you're, you know, the author's wanting you to be like, okay, this is gonna be good. Mordecai, something's good, good. Something good is gonna happen to him. Look at what it says, chapter three, verse one. After these events, King Xerxes honored who? Mordecai, no he honored haman he honored haman who is haman this guy's no good who's haman the son of oh my goodness i gotta say that again he honored haman the son of hamadatha 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 fast and confident hamadatha who decides to preach through these books with these hard names so difficult but look at what it says next he's the agagite say that three times fast agagite now, what we're going to see here, and this is important, we need to stop here and just unpack this for a second. That this man Haman, Haman the Agagite, becomes the enemy of Mordecai. Look at what it says in the next part of this verse, actually. It says that he's ele- he elevates him, giving him the seed of honor higher than uh, that of all the other nobles. So we get this picture, right? See, see what's happening here. Mordecai saves the day. Mordecai saves King Xerxes. You're expecting Mordecai to be elevated. And then what happens? This man, Haman the Agagite, Agagite. Sounds like a bad guy. Doesn't he just say Agagite? He gets elevated. Now, if you were to go back a few verses, chapter 2, go back to chapter 2, verse 5, here's what we see when we were introduced to Mordecai. Now, there was uh, in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Jair, son of uh, Shemi, uh, the son of Kish. So uh, when the, the biblical authors kind of unpack these names for us in these lineages, the, the lineage of Mordecai and the lineage of Haman, uh, it's pretty significant. It seems like, you know, just like they're reading the phone book or something, but they're actually trying to show us something. Uh, and so what the biblical author is trying to show us here is, is that um, Mordecai comes right from the line of Saul. A Kish was actually the, the father of Saul, who was one of the kings in the nation of Israel, one of the great kings in the history of the nation of Israel. But then Haman, who comes from this Agagite line, he was also in the line of King Agag, who was the king of the Amalekites when Saul was the king of the nation of Israel. And the Amalekites, and specifically at this time, These guys were arch enemies. And so if you were the first readers, the first audience of this book, you would read what is happening here and you would be saying to yourself, okay, it's not fair that Mordecai didn't get the promotion. It's not fair that Mordecai didn't get rewarded. But more than that, not only did Mordecai not get rewarded, how did this Haman guy get elevated? What is happening here? Uh, This would be like you going to work and your boss is looking to give someone a promotion and you're the kind of employee that shows up early, you leave late, you always do the right thing, and then somebody else gets the promotion. It's not fair. It's not right. Right? We, we, we understand what this is like we look out at the world and we see this all over the place we see this in some of our political leaders where it seems like ethically or morally they're they're not even qualified to be clowns at our kids birthday party and yet somehow they end up with the code for the big red button that can end the whole thing how does that happen it's not fair uh, or, or maybe for for some of us you know we're, we're raising our kids and it feels like we're doing all the right things we, we take them to church gatherings we read the bible at home we Pray with them, we teach them right from wrong, and then they grow up and they're rebellious. It's not fair. What's going on? God, where are you? God, what's happening? God, have you forgotten us? It's this classic nice guys finish last situation. Uh, on some level, I think we've all felt this before. And what the people who were reading this, the first people who were reading this, what they would have been asking is, God, I thought we were your chosen people. Why aren't you being faithful to us? Why aren't you fulfilling your promises? And the answer that we keep coming back to in the book of Esther, and it's not necessarily an answer that we are going to like is that sometimes God's providential hand moves through circumstances beyond our control and even through events that just seem to happen. See, some of us have this view of God that his blessing or his providential hand, they sort of work like cause and effect. If we do the right things, if we say the right things, if we if we you know, check off all the boxes, that then God has to bless us. He has to prosper us. Harm shouldn't come our way. And we kind of have this transactional view of how our relationship with God is supposed to work. I'm going to do everything that I'm supposed to do. I'm going to do all the right things. I'm going to be the right kind of person. And then God, you have no choice but to bless me. I don't know if you see kind of the underlying premise of the way that God works in that idea of God, but it's, it's this idea that we can somehow indebt God to us, that he owes us something, that because we've done the right thing, because we've uh, you know, you know, not done certain things and, and done other things that we were supposed to do, that because we obeyed all the rules that God has to bless us. Well, if there's one thing that the book of Esther teaches us, and if there's one thing that we see consistently through the story of God, is that that's not always how God works. That God's providential hand indeed works through human history, but friends, don't miss this. Oftentimes, God's providential hand works through the brokenness that is human history. If you just think about the whole storyline of the Bible what do we see right at the beginning of the story? God makes the universe. He, declares, he creates the heavens, the earth. He creates the earth. He puts Adam and Eve, and it declares it very good. Genesis chapter 3, sin enters the world. And what we see in the very nature and essence of God is that he chooses to work in and through the brokenness. He chooses to redeem broken things. He chooses to not just leave us, not just smite us, but enter into our pain and walk with us. You see, if this story read like this, uh, Mordecai uncovered the plot uh, for Xerxes to be assassinated. He saved the day. Xerxes promoted Mordecai, and Mordecai, he then becomes the hero see but what's happening here is that we're left in this place where we're going like god are you going to show up where this story is going to take us in just a second is it's going to take us right to the very brink where it's like god you better do something we we need you we're helpless we're hopeless will you save us and in that story who then is the hero church who's the hero God's the hero. And don't miss what's happening here. Spoiler alert, you take a step back. What's happening here is that Mordecai is actually being prepared for the redemptive work that God is going to do in his future. Is it possible that right now the pain, the hardship, the tragedy that you're experiencing is actually producing something in you that God wants to use in the future? Uh, We see this in the life and ministry of Jesus. Before he starts his public ministry, right after his baptism, where does he go? He goes to the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. Don't miss what the gospel accounts of Jesus's life tell us. He was actually led there by the Spirit. That not every bad thing that happens to us is is our enemy, but it might actually be something that God, through His providential hand, wants to use to produce something in us. Now, don't mishear me. God is not the author of evil but he chooses to enter into our brokenness and he chooses to use it. He chooses to work in it and through it. I mean, I was just reflecting on this this week where I was asking all these questions of like, what has God been doing in my life in this season that, you know, if, if you were just to look back at my life over the last number of weeks, you say, this is really bad. Lots of bad things have happened to Chris. Chris should be upset. But as I reflect on all that God has done, it's it's caused me to actually see that he's produced some things in me that otherwise I would, not have, I would not have encountered, I would not have realized that I do believe he wants to use in the future. My intimacy with my wife, my closeness to my children, my intimacy to Jesus, my prayer life, all these things have been, been grown, been deepened, been strengthened as a result of hardship. Is it possible that in this season that maybe you're going through something that's hard? Uh, maybe the COVID stuff, it's produced things in your life that, that are hard. And you could be angry about it. You could be frustrated about it. You could just, you know, cross your arms, furrow your brow and be upset. Or you could press into maybe the fact that something is happening in your life. That the Spirit of God wants to produce something in you that God will one day use for redemptive purposes later. Don't miss what God might be doing. So Mordecai is expecting to get a promotion. Instead, what happens? Haman gets a promotion. And then what do we see next? Look at verse 2. All the officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman. So Haman's elevated. Everyone is starting to worship Haman. He's like the king's right-hand man. For the king had commanded this concerning him, but Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor so Haman comes in Mordecai's a little resentful he doesn't bow down he like kind of gives him the stink eye crosses his arms furrows his brow he's like I want nothing to do with honoring you you're my enemy verse uh, verse three then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai why do you disobey the king's command verse four day after day so it's intensifying it's happening more and more frequently day after day they spoke to him but he refused to comply therefore they told haman about it so now haman's kind of getting brought into this hey there's this guy mordecai he's not complying to see whether mordecai's behavior would be tolerated for mordecai told them that he was a jew so mordecai all of a sudden decides to play the religious card right uh, the other guys in the court are going, "Why aren't you bowing down to Haman?" And Mordecai says, "Well, it's because of my Jewish heritage." Now, it's easy to look at this and think, "Wow, what a like! This is a pretty pious guy, right? A holy guy, akin to Daniel in the book of Daniel, who would not bow down to King Nebuchadnezzar." That's not what's happening here, right? Mordecai, up to this point, has not been a very pious, religious guy. Right? This is all of a sudden, you know, th- this is kind of him playing the religious card out of convenience. Like the right time to play the religious card would have been back in chapter two when he, you know, had this idea, this inclination to pimp out his adopted niece to King Xerxes. Like that would have been the time to say, eh, no, I follow Jesus. This is him playing the religious card out of convenience. It's not out of piety, it's out of convenience. And look at what happens next, verse, uh, verse 5. When Haman saw that Mordecai uh, would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. So now Haman's upset. Haman's frustrated. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. So he looks at Mordecai and he says, "I don't like you. I don't like your people. I want to kill everybody." Remember what's happening here, right? This is more than just two dudes having a conflict. This is actually the meta narrative of good versus evil. This is actually God trying to work His redemptive plan, and and Satan coming against it. Story goes on. Verse seven in the twelfth year, King Xerxes in the first of sorry in the twelfth year of King Xerxes in the first month of nisan the poor the pur that is the lot was cast in the presence of haman to a select to select a day in a month and the lot fell on the 12th month the month of adar So what's happening here? Haman's going like, I want to get rid of the Jews. I want to get rid of Mordecai. I want to get rid of all these people. So what does he do? He comes and he casts lots. Uh, Literally, this would have been like throwing dice. The difference between what Haman is doing here and the way we would throw dice uh, today is that this was actually a deeply spiritual practice. Uh, Haman was actually seeking Um, He was seeking, like, divine intervention, if you will, from the Persian gods. Uh, This, again, would be akin to us seeking the universe for advice. When bad things are happening, going to the universe saying, the universe is against me. Uh, The Bible speaks very clearly that there's only one who has authority over human history, and that is God. That there is no such thing as the universe speaking or the universe having any functional authority. Well, make no mistake about it, what we are seeing here is demonic practice. Uh, when we dabble in New Age spirituality, when we dabble in these sorts of things, we're actually consulting evil. Evil. God is the one who ordains our days. God is the one who ordains evil human history god is the one who we should seek after god is the one whose providential hand moves and again if you're going through hard times the answer the universe would give you is you know stop giving out these these bad vibes to the universe it's sort of this idea of you know the the law of attraction that if you give out more good then more good will come that's just functional demonic religion that if you do the right things you can somehow indebt god to yourself But what the God of the Bible, what the Bible teaches us, what the God of the Bible shows us is that even when there's brokenness, God's providential hand is moving. So even when things aren't going our way, there's hope. There's hope that God will somehow bring about redemption in the midst of the brokenness. If you're suffering, if you're experiencing hardship, it's so easy to look elsewhere but to God. But don't miss the fact that God, in his care and kindness, actually wants to meet you in the place of your pain and your suffering. Haman doesn't know the God of the Bible, but we do. We can come to him. Then look at what happens next. Picking up in verse 9. Then Haman said to Xerxes, There is a certain people dispersed among the people in all the provinces of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. Their customs are different uh, from those of all the other people and they do not obey the king's laws and it's not in the king's interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them and I will give 10,000 talents of silver to the king's administrators for the royal treasury. What's happening here? Haman approaches Xerxes. He says, listen, there's a bunch of people out there. They're different than us right this is functional racism this is xenophobia this is happening even today in our world right now this happens even in this covid moment this happens and what Mordecai is doing here is he's appealing to Xerxes not on the basis of what is true but just on the basis of what might appeal to Xerxes carnal interest he appeals to money he appeals to power and what does Xerxes do look at what it says in verse 10 so the king took his signet ring that's his authority from his finger, he gave it to Haman, uh, the son of Hamada, Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. And he says, "Keep the money." That's what the king said to Haman, and do with the people as you please. So you see, this conflict is arising. There's going to be there's going to be this day that is coming where the people of God are going to encounter the wrath of King Xerxes, the wrath of the empire, the wrath of Haman. And then look at what happens, verse 12. Then on the 13th day of the first month, the royal secretaries were summoned. They wrote, they wrote out in the script of each province and in the language of each people all of Haman's orders to the king's satraps, the governors of all the various provinces and the nobles of all the various peoples. They were written in the name of King Xerxes himself and sealed with his own ring. Dispatches were sent out dispatches were sent out by couriers into all the king's provinces so haman king xerxes they speak it is transcribed as though it was the word of god it was translated just as we translate our bible into various uh, uh, tribes to various tribes and in various tongues so that the people could understand and it gets sent out and then look at this second half of verse 13 with the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews. All the Jews, young and old, women and children on a single day. On one day, all the Jews, all the little girls with their pigtails, all the little boys riding their bikes, all the moms, all the dads, all the grandmas, all the grandpas gone. Genocide. The depravity of mankind put on display in one day. So it says the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and plunder all their goods verse 14 a copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so they would be ready for that day it's going to happen it's coming the death of all of god's people is imminent you read this story and it kind of brings you to the brink. It brings you to the very edge. And you kind of, you kind of feel like at this point you're saying, Okay, this is the moment where God is finally going to show up. Uh, this is the moment where God is finally going to speak. This is the moment where, where God is finally going to do something. God, what are you going to do? Are, are you going to speak? Are you going to send a prophet? Are you going to send an angel? Are you going to send an army of angels? Are you going to send a, a plague? Something to free your people? And what do we see? Look at verse 15. The couriers went out with the message, the message to destroy all of God's people, spurred on by the king's command, and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa, and the king and Haman sat down to drink. But the city of Susa was bewildered the people were confused they didn't understand they were perplexed and what does Xerxes and Haman do? they sit down after commissioning into law mass genocide they kick their feet up and they have a drink pat themselves on the back for a hard day's work what if you're if you're like me you read this story and, you, and the, the question you ask yourself is what is this about why is this even in the bible what does this have to do with anything what, what does this have to do with jesus what does this have to do with my life what does this have to do how, how with how god works i read this story and you read it and it feels like evil is winning god you're losing and evil is winning and maybe for some of you though it's not even this story that you have to read to feel that way it's your life Uh, the moment that we find ourselves in is is so complex it's so confusing there's so much information there's so much intensity in our world right now our kids are stressed out we're stressed out our friends are stressed out our neighbors are stressed out Uh, there's economic hardship uh, there's hardship in our homes. Or, like our marriages are under stress and duress. Our relationship with our kids, it's its, it's stressed. It's just hard. Things are hard. And we we've, we look at the plight of our world, and it kind of feels like this. It feels like evil is winning. And we've said this before, and we're going to keep saying it. We're going to keep saying that the way that we see God work in this book is not through his visible hand of miracle, but through his invisible hand of providence. God doesn't speak here audibly. He doesn't intervene. Prayers aren't prayed. Sins aren't repented of. And the appearance is that evil is winning. But what we keep seeing time and time and time again in this story are these glimmers of God's grace these little intimations of his hope. Today in these verses, in verse 7 and verse 13, we get these pictures of God's favor, his grace for his people. As Haman is trying to figure out how it is that he is going to execute this mass genocide of God's people, the lot falls on a particular day and that particular day happens to be the eve of the passover Uh, the passover is a story that goes all the way back to exodus chapter 12 in exodus chapter 12 the situation is different we have a different nation it's not persia but it's egypt we have different um emperors it's not it's not um xerxes but it's but it's pharaoh but the stories are the same We have an emperor who thinks he's God, who's ruling over the people of God, who's executing his judgment over God's people. And in the story of Exodus, God intervenes and he says he will bring a plague and and this plague will come across the whole nation of Egypt and only those who obey him, follow him, love him, serve him will be spared. And he gives some very specific instructions. He instructs his people to go out and find a lamb, a pure, spotless lamb, an unblemished lamb one to represent sinlessness and the people are to literally confess their sins their brokenness as an outward sign of their belief in the god of the bible the the god who is the one who has the ability to forgive sins they are to confess their sins over the lamb they are to then kill the lamb and take the blood of the lamb and they are to spread it over their doorposts again this outward act of their inward faith And it is that blood of the Lamb that is then imputed unto them. The death the Lamb died was the death that they deserved to die. And when the angel of death comes, he passes over the house that is under the blood of the Lamb. God saves his people. He redeems his people. He rescues his people from slavery. In other words, what God's saying here in the book of Esther is, that's my plan. Uh, my plan is to, to save you. I have not forgotten you. I will take care of you. I, I have this. Uh, this story points forward to the hero of this bigger story, the story of the Bible, which is Jesus Uh, And in the story of Jesus, just as we see Esther and Mordecai who are two cousins working together to fulfill God's plan and purpose who, who God is working through in his providential care to rescue and redeem the people of God, we see Jesus and his cousin John working together in tandem as God's redemptive tools. And John, the cousin of Jesus, sees Jesus. And what does he call him? What does he say? He says of Jesus, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Later in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul in the book of 1 Corinthians, when, when writing about Jesus, he actually calls him our Passover Lamb. And we get this picture of a God who saves, a God who redeems, a God who rescues. Oh, we hear a story like this we experience sto- we experience stories like this where it feels like god is absent and it drives us to this place of deep desperation for a savior and what god is trying to say here to his people and what he is trying to say to you and me is i have you in this moment i have you you can trust me that while king Xerxes is the kind of king who doesn't even investigate he just looks out at his empire and he sees them as a group of people who are there to serve him and if they don't serve his purposes he decides to kill them king jesus is different he gets up off his throne he enters into and among his people he sees their faces he acknowledges their pain he touches them he walks with them he heals them And Xerxes, who finds out that his servants have plotted against him, plotted his own murder, executes his wrath and judgment upon them and has them crucified. Jesus, when he looks at us, his servants, who haven't loved him well and haven't served him well and haven't followed him well, just like Esther and Mordecai, he doesn't have us crucified, but rather he dies in our place for our sins. And as he hangs on the cross, what does he pray for us? He says, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. And the question, a text like this, a story like this, a moment like this drives us to ask, calls out from within us is where will we go? We need to be saved. We need to be saved eternally, but we need to be saved in this moment. Where will we go? Where will we go? And friends, the call is that we would go to Jesus, that we would trust Jesus, that we would give our lives to Jesus, that we would give this moment to Jesus, that we would recognize that his hand of loving providence is on us, that he has not forgotten us and he is with us. Will you come to him today? Will you trust him today? Will you give yourself, will you give this moment to him today? Let me pray for us. Jesus, we thank you for your grace and your mercy and your kindness. We thank you you for how you work in and through our world. Even these moments where it seems like you're far, we, we can know that you're here right now. Church, he's with us right now. Friends, he's with you right now. You're not alone. We're not alone. Jesus, we thank you that we are not alone. And my prayer for us is that we would We would trust you. We would keep our eyes fixed on you. We would love you and we would walk in faith. We pray in Jesus' name, amen, amen.